Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. My name is Anthony Kazazis, and I am the director of the NYC Network Group, as well as the NYC Real Estate Expo. And I want to thank you all for registering for today's State of the Multifamily Market Post-COVID webinar, sponsored by WeLend LLC. WeLend is a private lender focused on servicing real estate investors by providing quick and low-cost capital on their investment properties. WeLend's approach to lending is centered around the investor, therefore allowing the investor to focus more on their investment and less on their loan process. WeLend was founded by a group of real estate investors whose emphasis was on acquiring and improving distressed properties. So whether or not you are an experienced real estate investor, WeLend's team has the qualifications to exceed expectations and can assist in the expansion of your real estate portfolio. Today, you'll learn from commercial real estate industry titans as they dig into the current state of the multifamily market in a post-COVID landscape. When you have a question, everyone, please uh, submit it, type it up, and put it into the Q&A section, not the chat section. Just in case, if we can't answer your question, we will copy it. I'll submit it over to the team at WeLend. They will also, of course, be sending out a thank you letter as well as a video, an edit video. And we'll do our best to answer all those questions that were not answered. Uh, today, our moderator is Andrew Snitzel, partner at the Wheeland LLC. Panelists today are Gabe Marquez, assurance partner at Cone Resnick LLP. Lance Peterson, founder, managing partner at Verivest. And today we have uh, Aria, who is filling in for his father, Greenwald, VP at Riverside Abstract. Um, Gabe, let's start off with you, Gabe. Can you give us a little bit of a bio on yourself and your company? Sure, sure. Thanks, Anthony. Yes, my name is uh, Gabe Marquez. I'm a partner CPA with Cone Resnick, based here in actually Los Angeles on the West Coast, where I head up the commercial real estate practice. So I've been in public accounting for over 32 years. Uh, focusing primarily on, on real estate construction, but happy to discuss you know, some of the dynamics we're seeing in the multifamily sector today with the panelists. Thank you, Gabe. Lance? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I'm Lance Peterson. I'm the founder and managing partner of Verivest. We're based in Portland, Oregon. We've got clients all over the country. We've got we have four different components to our business. We've got a fund uh, formation advisory practice, which I head up. Um, it's all real estate related stuff, commercial, you know, residential. And then we've got, we have a fund administration practice, a partnership tax practice. And we re recently launched a sponsor directory and marketplace to help connect investors with deal sponsors. Um, so we're really kind of end to end trying to service the, what we call real estate entrepreneurs around the country. So thanks again for having me. Yeah, thank you, Lance. Uh, Aria. Thanks for having me, Anthony. You're doing a great job so far. Um, so we have a title insurance agency. We service uh, all 50 states. We've done about uh, 2020 um, 
even though there was the pandemic and business was slower, we still did about $20 billion in transactions. We have about 150 employees with us right now across about six offices. Um, we have our sister company, Riverside 1031 and Riverside Tax, which handles 1031 exchanges and cross-segregation. And um, yeah, we've done about 6,000 deals uh, last year. So we've, we've definitely seen enough deals to uh, share some of our thoughts. Very impressive. Thank you, Ariel. Anthony, thank you for having us. So I'm a partner at WeLens. We are a nationwide private lender. We lend on both residential, multifamily, and mixed-use assets, all nationwide. Um, we excel at just providing quick, low-cost capital to our investors, and we're, we just pride ourselves on uh, the certainty of execution and quality of experience that we offer to our investors. So let's jump right into it. So the first question is for Lance. So Lance, what trends are you seeing today from multifamily debt funds that you work with? Yeah, I think one of the trends I've noticed in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months across, you know, our debt fund clients is, you know, beginning to explore how to do more <clears throat> prep equity mes debt deals. Um, you know, those are, you know, more and more common, I think, and people are realizing, um, you know, a way to kind of get into the capital stack and, and, you know, position themselves, especially the ones where they might have their own operating platform. It's not the worst thing in the world if you make a deal, you know, to an operator and, you know, if they can't execute, you know, they could step in. And, but I just think it's, it's more commonplace and, and given the, the, you know, where we're at in the market. Um, it, it just ends up being a really good way to boost yield in the funds and, you know, makes a lot of sense and, and just the bridge product in general, right. It's just a, a, the faster and the speed of close working with guys like Weland, And, you know, that's really what in, in a market like this, you just need, you know, it, it's just a lot more important that you can execute and get a deal closed fast, you know, whereas the, the conventional sources sometimes can kind of drag it out. That's definitely a big trend we've been seeing. Totally. I think that uh, during COVID, it really slowed down the, uh, the timeline that it takes for banks and other conventional lenders to close. And we just see the need for quick capital in order to get deals closed. Um, so next question is for Gabe. So Gabe, how would you say COVID has impacted the tax strategies that multifamily investors use in today's market? Yeah, no, great, great question. And as we all know, you know, anything in real estate does often start with, you know, the tax planning, the tax strategy, and the tax efficiencies that can be had. Um, one of the things we recall is just over a year ago in March 2020, the CARES Act, which was a stimulus bill that came out as a result of, of the pandemic right when it first started, you know, it provides an opportunity for an investor of any asset class, but, but let's talk about multifamily who had previously elected not to have interest expense limitations. And so they defaulted into what was called kind of this alternative depreciation system where they're gonna use 40 years for the depreciation expense. What the CARES Act provides now is an investor could now determine what depreciation expense would have been had they depreciated that building over 30 years. So it's slightly accelerated. And you can submit an adjustment form uh, for this accounting change to effectively kind of catch up on depreciation expense and file it actually with your 2020 tax return. So that's that's one of the kind of very common and, and uh, popular 
tax strategies that we're seeing coming out of the pandemic and of course for multifamily investors. So next question is for Ari. Um, so Ari, how would you say that COVID changed the multifamily transaction flow that Riverside has seen? Sure, so um, pre-COVID, we were seeing a kind of an even flow of transactions that were happening between um, New York, New Jersey, and out into what we call out-of-state transactions, out into the rest of the states. Um, in a COVID world, we are really seeing between COVID, between what happened June, uh, I believe it was June 2018 with the uh, new rent laws in New York City, we've seen a lot of those transactions definitely move out of New York. Um, and we're seeing, I mean, uh, a ton of transactions out of state. Uh, I, if you want to ask me the state specific, put your finger on a map, it's happening there. It's the pricing out of state is going up like crazy just due to the demand of, you know, New York buyers going out into those uh, states and buying, but it's, it's really blown up tremendously. That's exactly what we're seeing on the WLAN side as well. Um, we're seeing a lot of deal flow coming in from markets like Florida, New Jersey, sure. some deals coming from Alabama, um, just all a lot, of the, a lot of the red states specifically. Totally, totally. All of our New York investors are going out to markets and definitely a lot of red markets like Texas, Florida. Um, so next question is for Lance. So Lance, what markets do you anticipate that the multifamily debt funds that Veryvest works with what markets do you think will be most active in post-COVID? Yeah, you know what? It's I mean, I talked to a lot of guys, I mean, basically all day long talking to operators. Um, I mean, the vast majority of them, you know, Texas is obviously super hot. I mean, just the Sun Belt in general, the Carolinas, Florida, um, seeing more Tennessee. I think people are, you know, starting to, to wake up to like the Boise, Idaho market. Salt Lake City, Phoenix. I mean, I'm not saying anything that's sort of like, you know, a shocking development here, but it's just, you're seeing this, what I think will probably be, you know, called the great reshuffle. Um, when we look back here, it's just people are just, they've, this, you know, the whole COVID thing just caused everyone to kind of reassess their situation. Obviously, we've now proven that you can work from wherever you want. So you are seeing, as you guys were alluding to with the New York City markets and obviously San Francisco and Chicago, I mean, it's just all day long. That's all I hear. It's just about how everyone's sort of, you know, moving out of those markets and and sort of dispersing into these these other, you know, weather obviously being a, a big part of it, right? Just if I can live wherever I want, then I might as well go live in the Carolinas. It's beautiful there. Um, and as you said, Ari, right? Like, I mean, the red states, it's just, it, it's just a big part of it. I mean, people, I mean, there's, there's just, you can't avoid, I mean, you can't ignore it, right? I mean, they're leaving California, they're leaving Illinois, they're leaving New York, um, and they're going to places that are just more friendly to do business in and have nicer weather. And uh, But yeah, it's, it's been very, 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 very interesting. Yeah, and I think that term that you use just really nailed it on the head, the, the great reshuffle. Um, I think we're all kind of just waiting to see how things are gonna pan out um, over the next year or two. Um, so next question is for Gabe. So Gabe, what effects do you anticipate that OZs or opportunity zones will have in a post-COVID multifamily sector? Yeah, no, another great question, Andrew. And look, I mean, I, I think with the pandemic, we do expect an increase in the interest for investors to look at opportunity zones 
uh, particularly in the multifamily market, because obviously what COVID has done, it's, it's heightened the needs of distressed low-income communities to be revitalized, right? So just, you know, just to kind of frame the discussion is, you know, opportunity zones, you know, came about, you know, in 2017 as a result of the, of the tax cuts and jobs, jobs Act, and it provides tax advantages to investors who take proceeds, say, from a capital gain, like the sale of stock or a business, invest them through a fund into a qualifying project in a designated you know, zone. Um, you know, the, the challenge right now with opportunity zones, it's, a very, it's in the very early stages and there's some disconnects that, that are rising between investors and communities and what the priorities should be. Um, but people are starting to realize, you know, you know, these are government tax incentives and the government is having fewer and fewer tools at its disposal to provide subsidies like this and encourage alignment. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these mission oriented projects, um, which, which are largely what opportunity zones look at, you know, they're going to struggle to compete with, you know, higher return projects, because as investors, you know, people are looking for higher returns. Um, but what is interesting is opportunity zones, you know, are this new form of investment, you know, deserving of, of serious consider, consideration um, and engagement from all corners of society, particularly when the stakeholders have an interest in community redevelopment, right? So I think as, as stakeholders kind of, you know, exert their influence and interest in the investment committees about, hey, let's take a look at this opportunity zone opportunity. Um, I think that's going to, that's, that's going to propel more interest and eventually, you know, we'll see more traction, you know, in this space. I'm pretty, pretty excited to see what happens. And I think in the coming, you know, months and years, we're going to see opportunity zones you know, more present in, in fund investment portfolios. Totally. No, I entirely agree that it's just very early on in the OZ space and that it's going to take time for it to mature. Um, but ultimately, it's going to be about the return on each project that's going to determine whether an OZ deal makes sense or not. Um, so next question is for Ari. So Ari, just a follow-up to the last question that I asked you. Do you expect the trends of New York investors going national, going to other states, do you expect that trend to continue post-COVID? It's, it's an excellent question. It's not a question that, it's a question I wish I really had the answer to because I would uh, I have nowhere to, where to put my money. Um, I, I don't see it letting up anytime soon. I think the point is that once people really get out of New York and out of the concrete jungle and they move out to the Carolinas and these warmer climates and they're paying you know, a fraction of the rent that they were paying in New York markets and they have 80 degree, 80 degree weather mostly, mostly around. At that point, after living there for potentially a year, two, three years, I think the conversation is going to have to be, hey, why would we move back to New York? So I, I, don't, I don't see a letting up anytime soon. Totally. And I think that just people who have moves to other markets, to Florida, to the to the Hamptons, to uh, uh, down south. Um, once they've picked up and they've uh, just moved their kids, put them in school, it's going to be correct. And, and, and sorry, and just to add to that, I mean, now especially with the a lot of the new tax plans that are coming out, right? There are significant, you know, values as far as just for tax planning purposes to really get out of New York. No, entirely. I mean, we're looking at. 50% taxes for our tax bracket in New York, whereas in Florida, it's a fifth of that. Um, so it's, you kind of see why 
people are leaving, um, especially with uh, all these big institutions such as Starwood and Goldman Sachs looking to move their asset division down to Florida. It seems like it's, it's just starting, to be honest. So next question is for Lance. So what prediction would you make for multifamily construction trends to occur in a post-COVID market? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'd go as far as like making pr- predictions. Um, not much of a prognosticator there, but I mean, what I've been hearing from people, right, is that that it there's certain markets where it makes sense. You know, it's starting to pencil out, right? And I think that look no further than, uh, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth is an example. I mean, you've got all these people moving Austin, Texas, uh, Florida markets, Orlando, Tampa Bay. Um, it, it's just, it's starting to make sense because of the cap rate compression. It just makes more sense to, to potentially build, right? And, and there's not enough supply. So you got a supply and demand issue. But I just think that that's market to market, submarket to submarket. And, um, you know, I think the other issue right now, of course, is that the cost of, you know, the construction material costs are through the roof. Lumber is crazy. I mean, that's going to make it a little more difficult for some of these deals to pencil, but it all, that's what it comes down to much like your OZ thing is that it all comes down to the economics. These things have to pencil out. Um, if they don't pencil, then you don't do it. And, you know, that just depends upon, uh, upon the market, but, um, I am, you know, seeing more of that. And I think as a good example, I know one of our clients is in Dallas, Fort Worth, and he basically has built a whole fabrication. He's got this industrial warehouse where he's, he now has all the machinery to do this light gauge steel. So he can basically go in there. You don't need lumber, right? He can basically fabricate, you know, two, three story, you know, multifamily <laughs> buildings in the, in, in the factory, bring it on site, tilt it up. And, uh, you know, so the speed and then the cost is obviously starts to make a heck of a lot more sense. So I just think that you're seeing some interesting things, but getting those units online and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's that's to me between the like repurposing of, you know, converting hotel motel to, to sort of workforce housing. I mean, everyone's getting really, really creative as to how to reuse what exists or find uh, alternate materials to construct in and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see the creativity and, and the technology that's being employed now in the real estate business, which has been lagging uh, really every other industry for a long, long time. Totally. I mean, we're starting to see the use of all sorts of new technologies in order to build residential and multifamily assets. Uh, we, we recently toured the first 3D printed house in America in Riverhead, um, which our, our friends built. And it was just mind blowing to see a house that's being able to be put up in a couple of days. Um, and that combined with the advances in prefab technology, um, I think that there's gonna be a shift in the market for a variety of reasons, but that we're gonna see a lot more of those sorts of deals in the coming years, especially due to the, the rise in the cost of goods, particularly lumber. So next question is for Gabe. So a lot of people have kind of just been skeptical in the real estate sector about Biden coming in and like what he's planning for the real estate sector in general. Um, Biden's talked about getting rid of 1031 exchanges. Uh, If this were to occur, 
what would you anticipate the effect would be on multifamily acquisitions nationwide? Yeah, no, great question. And, and we've heard a lot of the same discussion around, you know, with the new administration, what is the, the strategies around 1031 exchanges or capital gains for that matter? And you would think and just, just you know, anecdotally, if, if 1031 exchanges were to go away, you would, you would expect probably fewer multifamily assets to be traded between owners and investors, you know, particularly those that were motivated to execute a purchase or sale to take advantage of the 1031 exchange rules. Um, and I mentioned capital gains as well. That's another area that a lot of us are watching closely because I know there's been indications that capital gains tax would, would go up. So, you know, the tax planning strategies around this, some saying, okay, if, if, if 1031s go away or not, if capital gains rates, you know, tax rates go up or not, you know, looking here in the shorter term, you know, some are contemplating, do I, do I, do I pay my taxes now while the, while the capital gains rates are a little bit lower? So uh, again, again, an area that's very challenging and, you know, hopefully there'll be enough, you know, runway as far as if, if the administration does talk about, you know, removing 1031 exchange or where it's going to set the capital gains to tax rate at. Hopefully there's enough runway and, and time for people to effectively plan for what they want to do. But I know that's, that should be kind of a key priority right now for all multifamily asset investors. I think a lot of uh, private family offices and other uh, investors such as funds are kind of just sitting on the sidelines right now and just waiting to see how things play out. I mean, one with 1031 exchanges um, and also just to see if there's going to be any widespread distress in the multifamily market. Um, so people are just kind of taking this wait and see approach right now. That's right. Um, so next question is for Ari. So Ari, what cities in particular are you bullish or bearish on for multifamily transactions post COVID? And feel free to break that down into uh, class A, B and C multifamily as well. You're throwing, you're throwing a little difficult questions at me. <laughs> yes, you have it out for me, Andrew. Um, the, uh, we're seeing a lot, and I think we'll continue to see a lot post-COVID, um, which we keep saying over and over, which is the same markets. You know, Dallas, um, a ton in Houston. I've seen a lot in San Antonio. Um, the Cleveland, Cincinnati markets. We're seeing the North Carolina, South Carolina regions. Uh, Georgia is, I mean, if you owned an asset in Georgia two years ago, whatever you bought it for, you're in good shape today. Um, Florida, uh, anywhere that's warm, that's red. I think Georgia has actually turned into blue with this election, but they're still operating pretty red right now. Um, and, you know, moving away, moving closer to north, I think that even in the Connecticut markets, you know, surprisingly, I'm involved a little bit in the Connecticut markets. And I, I think that even though it's, it's really a blue state, there are a lot of advantages to that as well. There are plenty of value add programs and green programs that you can take advantage of. Now, I know I have a lot of clients that replaced all the appliances and all their buildings practically at no cost by you know, taking advantage of certain programs. Um, so, you know, in each market in each either blue or red, you just really have to know, you know, how to play that politically and how to take advantage of either the programs or you know, the lack of programs, but the ability to really go out and kind of do what you want. Um, but, and, you know, I, 
I'm a New Yorker, so I pray every day New York comes back to what it was because, you know, it's 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 kind of sad and disappointing to see what happened to, you know, New York, which is always our great city. And I, I do think that, I don't know if it's two years, five years or 10 years, but New York will come back. I think that, I mean, there's large institutions such as RXR and Related who are making literally multi-billion dollar investments in New York. Um, and I agree with your sentiment that like, hey, who knows when that's gonna occur? Um, when there's gonna be like life back in the city. But I think that there's, there's many large institutions who are very bullish and um, who are looking forward to New York returning to its, its glory days. I think we, we are all kind of waiting for that to happen. Um, so next question is for Lance. So um, Lance, what do you anticipate is gonna happen to multifamily owners after the eviction moratorium is lifted in respective states? Yeah, I mean, I think it's gonna be interesting. I guess my sort of anecdotal evidence of just talking with people, I, I, I don't seem to run into many people who have, you know, serious delinquency issues and maybe I'm just talking to the wrong people, but um, it doesn't seem like there's much of a problem. So I guess I would, I, I'm just assuming that what's happened is that you know, this unprecedented stimulus pro program that we've been executing sort of staved that off. And, and now you're seeing, I think, even in the journal this morning, it's, it's the, the, you know, the, those without, you know, the unemployment numbers are looking good. I mean, people are getting back to work. And so, I mean, I think it, it feels to me like, you know, when they lift these moratoriums, I, I'm sure it's going to displace some people, you know, that aren't going to be able to come up with the money and, you know, those sorts of things, but I don't think that it's going to be sort of this widespread gigantic issue where the performance of these assets is going to fall through the floor or something. Um, it's, I think it's going to end up as it always does, right? It, it's those who, it, you know, it's the people who are already sort of in dire straits, maybe before it happened, or just, it, it's, it's going to be tough for them. And, uh, and, but I, I just don't think from an industry wide perspective that it's just going to be this, bloodbath that's going to cause you know prices and you know to fall and you know i think what people were saying back in april uh may last year is just doesn't seem like it's going to happen i think we've we've just inherited a different set of problems that you know will rear itself here in the form of inflation or you know any number of other things but we've we've probably the stimulus probably did what it was trying to do and and you know not make that so much of an issue i could be wrong but and, and Andrew, if you wouldn't mind, if I can just add to that, and I agree with you, Lance, your perspective, and it's really, you know, about, you know, multifamily owners, right? So when the pandemic hit, you starting probably in April of 2020 last year, you may have saw some, some tenants not paying their rent, right? So, you know, the moratorium goes into effect and the restrictions on evictions, you know, started and they're in place today in many areas. Uh, talking to some of my clients that, that own, you know, multifamily apartments, you know, they're saying, hey, when the moratorium is lifted, you know, I'm not really motivated to kind of evict people because I'd rather have a tenant in there than not. I'm more concerned with, you know, the arrangement we had in place on the deferred rent. So if, if a tenant appropriately approached their landlord and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to need some time to pay rent, and there was a kind of a deferred rent arrangement in place, I think that's a positive for the landlord and the tenant, right? 
for, for those tenants that just were silent and maybe just kind of stopped paying rent and really didn't have a good communication with their you know, owner of the, the landlord, um, you know, when those moratoriums are lifted, you know, that's when the you know, landlord and investor is going to have to decide what they want to do because technically that tenant is in violation of their lease agreement. They didn't pay rent timely, they're in violation. So, you know, in that case, the, the, the landlord, the owners have, you know, pulled the cards a little bit on their decision. But like I mentioned at the beginning, I, I think most landlords would rather have a tenant in there and the, have the intent and hopefully ability to pay than to have a vacant unit. No, totally. I think that, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone wants to see occupancy rates high. Um, but I guess time will tell as to what exactly is going to occur as things return back to normal. Um, so next question is for you, Gabe. So how would you say that COVID affected multifamily and multifamily owners? Yeah, just kind of expanding on my comment a moment ago, you know, I think what you first saw was some tenants, you know, not having the ability or, or intents to, to pay rent. And so we did see that dip in, in cash flow. Uh, recently talking to a client and they were looking at their numbers uh, through the first quarter here of 2021. And I think their statistic was roughly about 27% um, of their cumulative portfolio tenants uh, were, were one month behind in rent, which, which you know, sounds, like, sounds like a big number, but it was much larger six months ago. And you know, I think they've had some outreach to the tenants to kind of discuss what their plans are going forward as far as to make good on any deferred rent arrangement or to let's put in place a deferred rent arrangement. Uh, not seeing a lot of concessions where there's forgiveness of rent, but you know, I think owners and landlords alike, I think they're gonna you know, wanna work with the tenants um, not to forgive the rent, but basically work out a payment plan effectively to collect that deferred rent. Um, so, so look, we, you know, the, the tenants, uh, as Lance and, and Ari kind of commented, there will be some, some tenants who just were probably in difficult situations to begin with, and the pandemic just kind of added to that. So there will be some displacement in that regard. But as from an investor owner perspective, I, I think there's many, um, there, there's much need for, for housing. And I know, uh, you know, looking across the United States, you know, with the pandemic, you, you saw a, a you know, and the workforce, be people being able to work out of the office, work from home. So they wanted to have, you know, more space. So possibly move out of a, you know, a unit in the city somewhere and try to buy a home, New Jersey, you know, adjacent state or community. Well, what you're hearing now is, you know, the housing shortage is so dire. There's a, there's a, a, there's a, a need for new single family homes, new as well as those uh, existing homes. So, you know, people got to live somewhere. So I think that's going to continue to sustain the multifamily occupancy levels for a period of time until the single family home uh, industry can kind of, you know, pick up pace as they appropriately can on delivering more home units. If that's the, if that's the direction some, some folks are looking for their housing options. Sure. And I also think that with the government, uh, keep on while they keep on popping out all these stimulus checks to uh, uh, to tenants like that's going to have a significant effect in terms of people are going to pay their rent so 
hopefully that keeps uh, some stability or continues the stability in the multifamily sector. And to add to add to that, we actually have a have a very close friend and client who owns mostly property in the Bronx and Harlem area, and uh, you know any of his tenants that had trouble paying rent throughout this period, their office actually spent a ton of time with them walking them through the process and how to get government assistance, and they were actually helping them get some personal funding so that, so that they can afford to pay their rent. I guess the question is how long these stimulus checks are going to last and when they dry up, what's the effect? Is that going to cause a, a huge correction in the market or will it remain stable? Um, so the next question that I have is for Lance. Um, so Lance, how do you expect the current rise in the cost of construction materials will impact a post-COVID multifamily market? I mean, I think kind of alluded to it earlier, right? It's just, it's, um, yeah, I think it just comes down to if, if those, I mean, let's put it this way, right? If, if we weren't seeing the increase in the cost of lumber, I think you'd see a more robust, you know, maybe Gabe can speak more to this in the construction side, but you, you probably see more people pulling the trigger, right, to develop. I think right now it's causing them to sort of pause and, and probably more so even on the single family side with home builders. I talked to a guy yesterday um, who's, who's building in Indiana and, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's what I expected I'd start hearing is this, it's making them, it's making them nervous a little bit, right? Rethinking it, like, do we do this? Cause they, they all sort of, I mean, many of them lived through the last downturn when they got, you know, left holding the bag with these lots that they had, you know, borrowed, you know, from the bank on. And so now they're going, oh man, what if we, you know, it's just, they're, they're gun shy still. And I think that, I mean, clearly they were, and this is why we have such a shortage is because we, the whole, it, it all got put on the deep freeze for how many years there, right? And then most of the activity as we saw was sort of just rehabbing the product that was already in place as sort of the solution, which was, which I think was a good thing, obviously, but, but there were really not that many new units being brought online or homes online. And, uh, so it just seems like that's that's what it is. It's just when you see things like this, it just causes people, it's it's more uncertainty, right? And and the more uncertainty you have, people, especially with what we've all gone through in the last um, you know, 12, 12 months or so, it's it's it just take it's better we all learn it's just better off just to stop and don't take action and 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 don't go too crazy here. And so I think that's the big thing. But I think some of the benefits of this are, as we talked about before, it's just there's other there's other ways to there's other materials, right? Whether it's you know 3D printing or just you know light gauge steel, modular, you know prefab sort of stuff, um, which I think is a good thing. I mean that's innovation and and you know people figure. I mean this is why I love being a part of the private sector and being a business owner and. In, in, in a democratic country that's, you know, a bunch of capitalists, like we're, we're going to figure it out, right? Like there's competition, we run into problems, we find ways to get creative, to innovate, to, to solve these, these problems. And, um, and that hasn't changed. And so I think that, that it's the same thing. And it's going to be, as we said, market by market. Um, you know, I'm interested. I think one of the people in the Q&A you know, someone was mentioning uh, Ronnie White here. He's saying, you know, you know, Texas energy grid and, you know, there's, there, there's issues, right? I mean, if all these people are moving to Texas and all these things and their, their energy grid, you know, can't handle this increased 
capacity, not to mention like climate change, a big, you know, another big topic that people, but I mean, you can't ignore some of these things. It's just, there's more, there's more, there's, it's getting hotter and hotter and it's getting, there's more, you know, hurricanes and, you know, all these things just seem to be popping up right and left. And, and, uh, but yet it's, that's where everyone's migrating is to those same places. So it's just, you know, just dealing with all of those things and what they mean, I think is just a lot of the stuff's unprecedented for many of us. It's just not following the patterns that we're accustomed to, to seeing. And uh, we've kind of lost, we don't have our compass, so to speak, so. I think that, I mean, I think that a lot of banks and uh, those conventional sorts of institutions have either pulled back entirely on ground up construction for residential multifamily um, and essentially what's happened is that there's been a flood of deals into the private sector. Um, and I think that a lot of investors don't want to work with banks just out of fear that, hey, in the middle of the construction, the banks are just going to say, we're, we're not giving you a draw. Um, I think that a lot of investors want the certainty of execution from a private lender on the construction side. Um, and I think we're seeing deals just come in nationwide of just subdivisions and uh, ground up apartments. And I, I would anticipate that that's, that's gonna continue in the coming years. Um, yeah, Andrew, real quick to add to that, what I am seeing in, in some, some areas where, you know, a multifamily apartment owner may have some vacancies, they're taking advantage of this time to do you know kind of some some planned renovations and maintenance there at the at the facilities or at, at the apartments because you can you can kind of you know work with tenants to kind of you know get them all on one floor or one specific building so where there where there has been you know a little bit of you know slowdown on new new ground up development those that had purchased multifamily assets in recent years with the plan to eventually do some repositioning of that asset do renovation and the like. Um, some are taking advantage of that because it's pretty, you know, pretty cheap money um, for the most part, short term, as you guys know. And uh, they can kind of have units, you know, available and ready to go, you know, once once people want to kind of, you know, can resume, you know, deciding where they want to live in an apartment, in a home, and wherever that might be. Totally, and that's exactly what we're seeing at WeLens. Just a lot of uh, reposition, re repositioning transactions. Um, and I mean, I think that that's going to be a lot more popular than ground up for the next, I would say 12 to 18 months, but, uh, time will tell the world, the world transitions into a, into, into bridge lending. Yeah. Right. At this point, your, your bridge rates are, are so are almost touching on agency rates. So if I have a little bit of value add, I may as well take that bridge with more flexibility and higher LTV yeah. and go the agency route. Um, I think that with all the, the rate compression going on, that in the coming years, uh, private lenders are going to be the, the new normal for a lot of uh, investors, I mean, both on the permanent side and on the bridge side. So uh, next question is for Ari. So how do you think multifamily is going to fare in the coming years relative to other asset classes? Um, good question. I think Lance touched on it, but, um, you know, 
in the office market, you have people that said, hey, uh, I, it's working. I don't have to be in the office and everything is fine. I've yet to hear a conversation of, hey, I've been living on the street for a week. It's working. I'm not going back home. Right. So everyone needs a place to live, as Lance mentioned. And um, multifamily will always, in my opinion, have a, a demand that isn't going away on the on the office side, it's really, I mean, you could speak to five people, get five different opinions. I personally do believe that um, office will come back, but more for the, let's call it mom and pop office, the medical spaces, right? Those are always going to be high in demand. When it comes to the, the tech world, which we're seeing is that there's really um, no use in office space. At least that's what they feel. I don't see the, you know, the, the big office spaces and the, the huge, you know, 100, 200,000 square foot leases, I think that's where we're going to see a little bit of the problems, but on the small leases and the, um, you know, the mom and pop leases, attorneys, accountants, medical, I think that'll definitely be strong and continue to be strong. I, I'm also very bullish on, besides for multifamily, uh, industrial. Oh, for sure. I, I, that's, that's an excellent point. I mean, you have people that are just buying, you know, a million square feet of industrial and doing a single tenant lease to the Amazons of the world. And there's, there's, a, there's a crazy demand for it, as we know. And yeah, we've definitely seen a, a crazy amount of volume in the industrial world. Exactly. No, I think the, point. the Amazon effect is really just changing the, the industrial sector. Um, and it's also just... The, the demands for the sector throughout COVID and post-COVID, I would imagine would remain robust. Um, so next question is for Lance. So Lance, uh, what do you think is gonna be the effect of rate compression on the multifamily debt funds that Veryvest works with? Well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I can answer that. I mean, I think that <clears throat> my, my hunch would be that that the cap rate compression makes it a little bit more difficult to get comfortable with the V and LTV um, because it seems to me, I mean, what I hear, you know, from clients is that, you know, in many of these markets, they're looking at the cap rates for a, you know, a value add, you know, B to C, and, and what they could pay to get a class A. And they're like, well, I might as well, I might as well buy the class A. I mean, it just, it's, there's more, there's more value there. Right. So you're seeing that shift. And I think that if I'm looking at the, the, the questions here, I mean, you know, uh, Raquel or, you know, someone's asking that whole, man, it just seems to me like stuff's really expensive in the market. Like how can I transact when everything seems to be overpriced? Well, that's universal. So everyone I talk to is basically saying that, like I can't, you know, every, every deal I look at, I mean, even if I even decide to put an offer in on it, I'm being outbid and, and it's going and someone's buying it. So there's some, you know, what they, of course, all the participants think is dumb money. That's basically transacting at some price that they would never in a million years, you know, acquire that asset for. So um, I just think that, and then when you, when you sit, when you put yourself then in the lender shoes, that's see, that's stuff that makes underwriters super nervous. Um, because the, you know, 
I mean, of course, it's all about your advance rate. I mean, what what are you what are you willing to do, right? But I mean, if you get a little, you know, over your skis here, especially on what, I mean, it seems like this market just keeps going and going and going and going. Well, I don't know if I if you guys, you know, can remember. It's been a long time ago now, but it's kind of how it felt in like 2005 and six and seven in the single family market. It just seemed like it cannot keep going up and up and up. There's no way, right? And then the bottom fell out of it. And so, and of course that was a different situation, but it does feel a bit like that because you do have people out there that are buying who keep saying that it's gonna keep going up into the right. The, the value is gonna keep rising, rising, rising. So I need, to, I need to acquire these things. So, I mean, being in that lender's position and as we've talked about, you know, with the, the agency debt or the conventional lenders who are, you know, as bridge lenders, you know, you, you, need, to be, you need to feel good about your exit. Like who's gonna, who's gonna refinance this deal, right? And so it's just, those are the things where we talk about, and it is great. I mean, I think that once again, as I've already said, I mean, I, I'm glad that the, the, the banks have sort of receded and really lending is not as much of a part of their business as it once was. And that it's great because it allows private capital, which there's plenty of and always has been to sort of flow and, and work, you know, and, and kind of do that work more so than it just being so one-sided where that capital is coming from. So I just think that it that's that's how the impact of this rate compression. It just it's really it's sleepless nights for underwriters would be my hunch. Um, it's just trying to figure out what is this thing going to be worth, and especially if they're executing some value add play when you're looking at you know that what what's the value on the other side of this thing, and it's uh, it's, it's a little little tricky. Totally, and I, I think the the good deals that we're seeing are just bound in. Uh, novel ways, um, just people finding distressed assets in one way or another, whether it's an estate sale, whether it's um, just someone who's in over their skis. Um, those are the deals that we're seeing are actually getting done in today's market. And I would anticipate are gonna get done a lot more actively in the coming months. Um, so the next question is for Gabe. So Gabe, do you think there's going to be distress in the multifamily market once all of the uh, COVID eviction moratoriums and restrictions have been lifted? Yeah, I mean, we touched upon that a little bit earlier and, and, and like you know, Ari commented, Lance commented, I mean, people got to live somewhere. And I think with the cost of, of housing, if you have a choice between single family home and multifamily apartment, there's going to be more options at more different price points for people to afford in, in multifamily. Um, so I, I, I think multifamily, it was commented like industrial are two asset classes that, that have, for the most part, I think have weathered the pandemic relatively well. Uh, industrial obviously done very well with the Amazon uh, effect and everything else. Multifamily, yes, there's been some vacancies. There's been some slow pace on deferred rent, but um, I'm not seeing it bottom out necessarily. So. Uh, still, still pretty, pretty optimistic that multifamily housing, in a lot of the markets that people have commented on, you know, will will continue to be strong. Um, the whole return to work concept is going to be very interesting. Um, you know, you know, whether it be service firms like CPA firms or lawyer, you know, law firms or other businesses, you know, commercial real estate is where people are still waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, it's possible that there can be some, you know, assets in that space that are going to, are going to 
you know, have to come to terms with how they want to, you know, re-envision what commercial office space looks like for a return of the office uh, as that starts opening up here more and more. And you imagine that a lot of employers, you know, you hear different, different statistics, right? Some employers saying, hey, only, uh, you know, a, a good, you know, 25 to 40% of my workforce is going to continue to work remotely. Um, so that means, you know, I'm only going to need space for what, 60, 75% of my current, current in, in workforce. Um, we're going to see what that office space needs to look like. So uh, that's, that's the one where a lot of us are keeping a, a watch on because uh, a lot of office space was, a lot of office space was built. Of course, office space has a lot more longer term leases. Um, so, you know, expect a lot of renegotiations in the in the office lease space you add on top of that how much office space is expected to come online here within the next 12 months it's just it's just going to complicate the situation just to to touch on that point because you you piqued my curiosity but on to move away from the multi just for a few seconds on the on the office side do you see you know the the major firms if they're saying okay we're, we're not bring anyone back to the office, right? I mean, I was out of the office uh, April 2020, um, May, I was on my sweatpants for about two months and I was about to, I was about to lose it. At a certain point, it, it's inc it gets increasingly difficult to work from home, especially if you have, you know, young, young children at home. Do you feel that the, you know, WeWork concept will start to actually get stronger now that people just need a place to go to set up shop and, and work for the day? That, that's a great question all right and that's what a lot of people have looked at they're saying hey the return to the normal office uh setup may not happen but if i need kind of to go you know locally in my community rather than commute into the city uh for for an office space i can go down the street and can we work you know resurrect that um i think it will to some degree I, i'm not seeing people clamoring on that quite yet largely because employers are still waiting to decide what they're going to do most will probably tell you they're going to offer some option to their employees to continue to work remotely, work from home, depending upon their family situation. Uh, you know, kids return to school, caring for family members. Um, it's, it's just more than, it's a multi-factor uh, consideration. But uh, I, I think those that have been supporters of, of like the WeWork model are looking at that saying, hey, this might be kind of how we resurrect, um, you, know, you know, after obviously they had, they had some challenges uh, this past year. I think just to take that one further, one step further, um, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen in retail. Just because so many people have gotten used to buying things online, is that going to decimate retail in the coming years? We'll discuss next year at the uh, panel. Yeah, exactly. Next year, stay, stay tuned for next uh, the next one, the retail uh, panel discussion. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but but you're right. It I mean at a high level. Yeah, retail's rethinking what it needs from a brick and mortar perspective, right? So um, whether it be, you know, gyms, movie theaters, you know, these, these uh, power centers, uh, you know, some have done well, your Lowe's, Home Depot's, you know, those, those have gone, been strong, but your, you know, retail department stores, your Macy's and the like, th those are the ones that, that look like they're going to be, you know, having to make decisions on how much space they need to occupy and whether they really feel shoppers are really bought into this, you know, the online model, not just with Amazon, but perhaps at their own, own website. So the next question is for Ari. So Ari, with uh, the transaction flow that Riverside has seen uh, since the start of COVID, have you seen any widespread 
distress in the multifamily sector? So it, we don't see the distress side as much because we're seeing we're seeing all the good stuff, right? We're seeing the purchases and we're seeing the refinances. Um, you know, that being said, the answer really lies in our conversations with our clients. We have some clients who were buying, you know, a ton of assets and super active and COVID hit and they really just closed up shop and said, we're not buying anything anymore. And what we're going to be doing for the next 12 to 18 months is assemble a fund so that we'll be ready in 2021, 2022 to start buying up distressed debt and start buying notes because they feel that it is going that direction and uh, they think there's a business to be made out of that and to take advantage of. Um, but really, we, we, we're really not in that world to really see the distress. You know, I think, um, I think Lance would see a lot, a lot more than that, a lot more of that being in the lending world and we're seeing the transactions. So it's all, it's all smiles when someone's purchasing and it's all smiles when someone's refinancing. So it's, it's really hard to see, you know, the distress in our industry. Sure. Um, and Lance, what are you seeing on that front? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it seems non-existent, right? So, and if, and if there is distress, same thing, I don't have purview into it because it means it's in special servicing or whatever, but across our client base of operators, you know, there's not, I don't, I'm not seeing it, right? I'm not, I'm not really seeing distress of any kind. And we've got, you know, really our client-based underlying assets are pretty much every property type you could imagine, just not seeing anyone really struggling. In New, in New York as well, Lance? Uh, don't have as much exposure to New York. And I guess the client we do right. have are the people who are buying the distressed notes from the banks. They've always been doing right. that. So I mean, I think that it's there. It's just we're not really in that upper end of the market to see that specific kind of distress. It's more of the middle market. But, and ultimately, ultimately, you know, I, there was a good line that a client uh, told me that, you know, if, if you owe if you owe $5 million to the bank, you have a big problem. But if you owe $100 million to the bank, the bank has a problem. Yeah. So I, I think that, the, you know, the banks are going to, you know, like you said, are going to be working with their, you know, their borrowers as much as possible because they really don't want to get, they don't want to take the keys back and, you know, leave the problem on their shoulders. Yep. I think assuming that happens, then it'll kind of be um, a return to normal a, a lot quicker and we won't see any widespread distress. Um, so I'm going to open up to questions from the audience. We had quite a few questions come in. Um, one of my favorites is from Raquel. So Raquel asked, do I buy a multi now or do I wait? Um, so Lance, I'll let you handle that one. <laughs> Choose your words carefully, Lance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, of course you should try to transact. I mean, I have, you know, I've, I host a podcast called the real estate risk report and this is, it, it comes up. I got a lot of guys who are multifamily operators on the show. And um, this is one thing that comes up all the time. I, I think that my answer to, to you, Raquel, and anyone who's looking to, you know, do deals is that you, there needs to, you have to have a method to your madness, right? Like you have to have a process about how you acquire potential opportunities, the way you bring those deals in, the way that you underwrite those transactions. If after assessing what you've been given, it meets your criteria, right? 
then you you know you should attempt to transact and put a you know an offer in. So I, I just think that that's always the case. It's just that now if you're a disciplined underwriter and you know it just depends upon your risk tolerance, right? That the answer today will be no more than yes. Whereas in 2016 or 17, the answer ended up being yes more than no. Um, it's just it, it, it that it's just that's the whole rub right there, right? So most of the, the, the people, the guys and gals that I I talk to on a daily basis, you know, I think they consider themselves more. I don't know, you know, discipline is the word that comes up a lot, right? And they and they look at some of their peers whose process is basically put an offer on every single property that they hear about. And and that's their literally their strategy. So then they end up transacting when they probably shouldn't be trans because clearly someone's buying these assets. Someone's paying what we all think is more than they should be. Um and well, it depends course, on your it depends on your investor base if you're a syndicator, right? If your yeah. investor base is, you know, they're they're thrilled with five percent returns, well, those are your buyers for the for the forecasts, <laughs> right? But yeah. uh, at least in my world, yeah, it, I, know, exactly. I, I really wish I had investors at five percent. But in my world, it's, it doesn't fly. So it's really, I, I find it's a, it's a patience game. It's how many deals could you underwrite without going crazy to find that deal mm -hmm. that was mismanaged or you know has a forty percent vacancy for a mismanagement purpose or reason, and you can come in and really put those, you know, blood, sweat, and tears into it. And that really is going to separate you from everyone else that's just putting offers on, you know, stabilized class A, class B plus deals. Yeah, that's right. It's where your capital is coming from and what they're, you know, what they're comfortable with. And then your ability is just an operator and just the ability to execute a business plan. And, you know, cause that's what it ultimately will come down to is that if it's skinnier deal, then you, be, you better be a really, really, really good operator. Right. And, and, uh, and I think that many of those guys who've been or gals who've been in the business a really long time can probably get away with it. They can figure out how to make it work, but I think it will be hard for emerging, you know, um, operators and people looking to get in, you know, where you need a little play in the system to make it work. You know, you can't, and it just seems like most transactions, just there's not that many of them out there right now. Yeah. You, you touched upon it earlier, Lance. It's the, it's the V and LTV. That's the challenge right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very true. I think that, I mean, for investors who are entering the market now, they just need to be patient and wait for a deal where there's upside and not just try to find the, the first market transaction that they can get their hands on. But with a lot of these, with a lot of the syndicators out there, their business model is to charge fees. So they're looking for any deal that they can get their hands on. So next question is from Levy. Um, so he's asking, many of my investors are telling me that it's hard to find a, a good deals, good deals in this market. So he's asking, why is this happening now? Um, so I'll open that one up to you, Gabe. Yeah, and just to extend upon what, what Lance and I were mentioning, Andrew is, yeah, it's, it's, it's the value and the strategy, right? So does, does, does your underwriting pencil out? So, you know, everyone would love to, to you know, get a deal where, you know, it's not, you're not buying something in, in the fours and the cap rate in that area. Um, but what I've seen with some of my clients, it's they're looking at deals, but it's also their strategy. So some who are more opportunistic, who are gonna put some money into the property, reposition it, perhaps combine units, people are looking for more space so if you have uh, an apartment building that's 
you know, you have, you know, 800 square foot, you know, units, but if your strategy is to acquire that and maybe combine a couple, so you now have a 1600 unit, that might be more attractive for a, a, a family to spread out, to continue to work remotely. So if you're seeing, you're seeing all these types of, of uh, creative strategies on saying, what can I do other than just keep the, you know, the, the typical, you know, box multifamily apartment, where can I be more attractive to potential renters? And of course, you know, command higher rents too, as well. And I think that's going to be the name of the game. It's just increasing rent, especially as inflation increases, we're going to see an increase in rent nationwide, coupled with the, the increased demand in these assets. Those two variables are really going to increase the cost of rent in the coming years. And then the last question that we have is directed to, uh, to myself. <laughs> specifically, it is... Um, what, what makes we lend so great? <laughs> <laughs> it's these webinars. <laughs> I, I forgot to thank you, Andrew, by the way, but on behalf of all of us, really thank you for putting this together and the team. It was a, I know it was a big effort and uh, you guys, you guys executed and sorry about all the changes on our side, but we had to make it a little more exciting. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome, Ari. Um, so just very quickly wrapping up, last question that we have, uh, again, directed towards me is where are we lending uh, as people transition to new markets? Are we lending in? Uh, class B markets, we're lending in rural areas. And the answer is that we're lending in 45 states at this time, uh, predominantly major uh, uh, MSAs or uh, the major cities. Um, we don't really look at rural areas just because we can't securitize those notes, um, but we're generally open to the uh, vast majority of the country with that being said. Um, so with that being said, I'm really grateful that we were, to were able to have these, uh, these rock stars, these real estate titans on today. Um, Lance, Ari, Gabe, thank you all so much for joining. Thank you. Appreciate thank it. You. Uh, thank, thank you, guys. Coming. Yeah, you guys, yeah. guys were spectacular. Very good. Um, learned a lot. Very educational. Very informative. Um, Andrew, you are going to do a three webinar series with us. We're going to have you back in May, uh, later part of May. Do you have an idea as to what type of panel you're going to come back with? This was spectacular. This was really good. But something Thank similar? Thank you. Um, we're going to have some uh, iconic uh, individuals in the real estate sector. Um, the CEO of one of the major Bonds, Turek, we're having John Beecham. Very good. And we have two of the most active attorneys in the space, John Hornick and Kevin Kim. Very good. Okay. We're familiar with John Hornick. We had him here on one of our events. So guys, once again, thank you so much. Um, we will be getting uh, the video completed within a couple of days. Um, and I want to thank the WeLend we and uh, thank them for uh, sponsoring this webinar. 
And we want to thank all you that registered today. And once again, um, I will make sure that whatever questions were not answered, we'll, we'll try to get those answers out right away for everybody, okay? So once again, thank you. And this concludes the webinar. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Anthony. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Take care, guys.